Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. But we set out on our journey of Lent. And as we set on Ash Wednesday, so I would like to remind you again that the journey of Lent really is about three things. First, it is to tell the truth as best we can understand the truth. It is to do this revolutionary act in a world where truth-telling at times can be hard to come by. The second thing the prophets on that day encouraged us to do was to hear an invitation. It is a, it is, we are invited in. We are not demanded to some moral code, but Jesus says, come. We are invited to hear that invitation anew during this Lenten season. And then finally, to see what it is that Jesus is doing, which is envisioning and creating a new way. This is what we call the kingdom of God. This is what Mark today will call the kingdom of God. That's what Lent is about. And all of our fasting and all of our charity and all the things that we do around Lent, if they aren't directed at these things, will probably go sideways. Lent is about living further into the gospel. That's what this whole season is about. But in this Lenten season, the Lenten season always begins us here with this text in one of the Gospels. This, this text of Jesus being baptized. Sometimes it takes us directly to the wilderness where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And so we'll begin this truth-telling and this invita- in, in, invitation and this new way forward. We'll begin where most Lents do, here. And I want to focus specifically on the story of Jesus' baptism today, but I want to invite you to step back from it a second. If you've lived in church life for a while, this is not the first time you've heard this story, but I want to suggest to us this morning that the story of Jesus' baptism is one of those passages that does a better job of the text reading us than we often do of reading the text. I'll say it again. The baptism of Jesus does a better job of reading us than often we do of reading the text. And perhaps you sense this because there's something amiss about all of these baptismal stories of Jesus. There's a certain pee under the mattress kind of thing, like the mattresses are piled high, but there's just this rock in our shoe kind of thing that drives us nuts about this passage. Something just isn't right. Why is Jesus participating in a ritual of repentance? Why is Jesus submitting to his slightly off-kilter cousin? Isn't Jesus the greater one? Doesn't John say, a one greater than I is coming behind me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not not worthy to untie? In fact, we might ask the question, why is Jesus submitting to anyone? He's the son of God, yes. And then pile on top of all this, this deeper reality that all the things that Jesus and John are seemingly trying to accomplish could already be accomplished with things, ways, and rituals that are already present at the temple and in the Judaism of the time. If it is a baptism of repentance, the temple already has rituals of repentance, ones that have been practiced for hundreds if not thousands of years. If it's about hearing a word from God, you know, like, hey, God spoke. Well, the Torah is being read in the temple, There's this unsettledness about the text for me, and I wonder if you've often shared that, like trying to unpack it, and you're like, something's just off about this. 
You know why this bothers me? Because the text is showing something inside of me. The text is showing me how I'm reading this text. And we often read this text, if you'll permit me this kind of language, we often read this text through the lens of power. And so much of our religious understanding is set up according to power structures and power dynamics. We're always asking the question, who's in charge and who submits? And how should they submit? And so it is natural because we've all breathed in this kind of air, this sort of dynamic, it's natural that Jesus comes to John and we see John in a position of power. He's the one doing the baptism, right? So when Jesus comes, Jesus must be submitting, yes? And that feels off to us because we understand the power dynamic to be different, right? That Jesus is greater than John. And if Jesus is coming to a ritual of repentance, then Jesus must be submitting himself to something like Jesus is sinful. He's less powerful in this kind of understanding. And sin must reduce our spiritual power, right? And so we assume that there's some sort of dynamic that is happening here. But the longer we look through at this story through the lens of power, the more we'll struggle to make sense of it and the more frustrated we will become as we're trying to make sense of who's in charge here. But that's not really about the text. That's really about us. The text is reading us. The text is showing us where sometimes we insist on a certain way of being, but the text is not formed in that way of being. We want to read it at who's in charge, and that's not the question the text wants to answer. The text is showing us what our own presumptions are and sometimes what our blind spots are. But if this is the first step in Lent then the way we read this text will affect how we do Lent. Because if these first steps in Lent, if we're reading this story and it's really unsettling to us and we don't understand why Jesus is submitting all this, if, it's, if these first stories seem uncertain and unstable, it has a good chance of derailing our Lenten journey because we're like, we're not setting out on real solid ground here. But here's the good news. We don't have to read it that way. We don't have to read it that way at all. There might be a different way of reading this story. Not that's going to blow it up. Not as if all of a sudden, 2,021 years later, we finally discovered how to read the story. That's not what I'm saying. There is a different way, though, that we might pay attention carefully to the text and let it speak to us in a slightly different way. There's an old saying in theology that theology is in the prepositions. All the teachers in the, in the congregation got very, very excited. The rest of us, not so much. But there's a saying that theology is in the prepositions. Prepositions are how we express a relationship between two words in a clause. So we say the man on the platform. The man on the platform, the preposition on shows us the relationship. Or we might say she arrived before dinner, before expressing the relationship between the woman and dinner. Theology is in those little words. And it's little surprise that theology would take a great interest in words that describe relationships. Indeed, so much of our faith is our relationship. Jesus said that. He's like, your whole faith is about your relationship with God and your relationship with your neighbor. And it is the tiniest little word in the story of Jesus' baptism, this tiny little preposition that maybe has us thinking differently about what Jesus' baptism is really inviting us to do. And this may sound petty, 
I don't have the numbers up, but our numbers may have dropped all of a sudden when we start talking about prepositions. But nevertheless, we're going to plow forward. But hear me out on this, because the language Mark uses in verse 5, which we didn't read, was that it says the people were coming to John to be baptized in the Jordan. The relationship between the people and the Jordan, baptized in the Jordan. But the language changes in the original text, when Jesus comes, it says that Jesus was baptized into the Jordan. The people were baptized in the Jordan, as, it, as if it were a location, which it most certainly is. But Jesus is described as sort of being immersed fully into the Jordan. And you say, what's the difference? Well, maybe there's a really big difference. Because the Jordan is one of the most powerful symbols of our Jewish and Israelite forebears of, a to of, of story upon story. Jesus is fully submersed and fully wrapped up in a movement that is symbolized by John in the Jordan. Jesus is not just participating in a religious ritual. He's identifying with a movement. He's identifying with a narrative. John is a prophet and remember, the prophets never come from inside the people. They never, come from, they never come from positions of power. They are always on the margins and always outside. So John is this prophet who is, a, who is critical of a religious system that during its time had burdened its people. It was not liberating them. It was not freeing them. It was not bringing them closer into the proximity of God. It was a burden. Jesus is going to criticize this time and time again. Remember what he does in the temple three years later. John is criticizing the religious system. And the Jordan is the symbol of a movement of salvation that is embodied from moving from an enslaved wandering people to a people in a land in covenant with God. The Jordan is literally the boundary between slavery and wandering and finally to being a covenanted, landed people at home. Movement from self-identity of oppression to self-identity as liberation. Jesus is identifying. He's being immersed in a movement. He's identifying with John and with these people who say there's a different way of being in the world. Jesus didn't come to John to apologize for a boo-boo. He's identifying with a movement not based upon rules and laws, but rather on love and justice. This preposition is doing a lot of theological work, but I think it is the theological work that is happening. The normal people are just kind of coming and they're doing a baptism. Jesus is diving all the way in. It remind, my favorite rebellion stories, forgive me, this is, all, this is for a subsection of the congregation. My favorite rebellion stories have been since my childhood, Star Wars. And I couldn't help but be reminded that as I, as I was reading these texts and thinking about this, I'm like, this reminds me precisely of the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian's got a creed, he's got a way of being, he's got a shiny armor and all this. And then there comes this moment where he finds this child and he's like, what am I supposed to do with this child? And his, his superiors say, you are supposed to take this child and help us find his people. And it's like, wait a second, the people are this race of enemy sorcerers. And they say, this is the way. This is, you've been immersed in this. This is your calling. It's not just a job. It is a way of being. It is a way of life that you have committed yourself to. You're not just, you're not just accomplishing a task. Jesus is not just accomplishing a task. He is becoming fully immersed in something. A story of freedom. 
It is just at that moment when Jesus has identified with that story of freedom that the heavens are ripped open. Israel had believed for the longest time that the heavens had been closed up, that the time of prophecy, the time of God speaking was over. From the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew were hundreds of years where surely God was present, but exactly what it was that God was speaking, it had been quiet. But the heavens are torn open. Heaven is available again. Heaven is speaking again. And the single sign of heaven's power, the spirit comes down. And it says it goes not in Jesus, but it's the same language. It goes into Jesus. Jesus doesn't just have this sort of spark of divinity inside. Jesus is immersed in it. Jesus is the very embodiment of heaven. And that is what sends Jesus on his way. He is not just somebody with some divinity. He is fully identified with a movement and fully and completely sent by God. Jesus is the movement that is breaking down barriers. Jesus is the movement who's making a new way forward. Jesus for us is the movement that is tearing open heaven and tearing open the curtain of the temple. It's the exact same language of tearing open the heavens that happens at crucifixion when the temple, the temple garment is torn in two. Jesus is literally tearing this open so that all can come to right relationship with God. And having endured temptation, which we read about in more detail elsewhere, but, it basically, but the temptations of Jesus, as you think about them, basically boil down to, Jesus, you can just do the spirit in thing and you'll be fine. You don't have to be fully invested in it. You can just kind of skirt the issue and still be God. Only after he resists those temptations to only be halfway in does then Jesus come out and start proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And if we're anywhere close to right on this reading that we've got this morning, then Jesus isn't just inviting people into membership. He's not necessarily inviting us to just confess sin, although surely that is part of it because we want to be truth tellers, but Jesus, he's not just inviting us to be part of an organization. He's saying, I want you to repent. I want you also to be immersed, to be surrounded in a new way of life and love and justice. Baptism of Jesus is about tearing the heavens open and heaven fully and completely embracing a new way of life. It's remarkable This theology hidden away in the preposition, not just to be a part of, but to be. Now, before we close all this out this morning, before we close here today, we have one other thing to take care of. Because today we'll gather around a table. We'll have a meal focused on this guy who was immersed in the Jordan. And we'll hear his words. It'll be pronounced out of our mouths, but it's the words of Jesus who say, this is my body, this is my blood. Taking this at face value, we'll pick up the body and blood of this guy, this guy immersed in this movement who came and tore heaven open, who rejected the old order of power and violence and brings us into a new kingdom of life and of love. And we're invited, what is this? Well, if this is just a ritual, most certainly it is a ritual, but if it is just a ritual... If we fail to discern the person in the middle of this meal, we'll fall into the same patterns that Jesus came to uproot and to unearth. 
just kind of a membershipy kind of thing. Yeah, I'm a Christian and I do this thing once a month because that's what we're supposed to do. But if we discern this guy who's bringing about a new way of life into the world, there's a question for us at the heart of this meal as well. Does Jesus' body and blood just come in us? As food does, providing some momentary nourishment? Or does it come into us? Does this meal just put us in proximity to Christ and what he set out to do? Or does it immerse our entire life, body, soul, and spirit, all of us, in this kingdom that Jesus comes to bring? This act of eating is profound. Is it in or is it into? Is, are we just a part of something or are we fully invested in it? Does it just touch us or does it fill us? Like Jesus, who stood on the edge of the wilderness these 40 days, so we stand here on the edge of our own wilderness these 40 days of Lent, and the call is there. Don't just let Jesus in. Don't just have sort of a piece of Jesus. Just don't do a Sunday part and hope that's nourishment for the journey. The call is to be all in, fully and completely submerged, enveloped, in this new kingdom that God is bringing, the one that the heavens have torn open to invite us into. So friends, may we come to this table hearing the good news. We're not just participating in the world the way it was. In this table, Jesus, as he tells us at his crucifixion, is making all things new. And we get to be a part. Mm -hmm.